When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Why is Hercule Poirot seemingly ignoring some apparently critical evidence that Monsieur Giraud recently discovered? Agatha Christie, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please become a supporting member. It helps support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you'll get a $17 discount. You win, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. For Cyber Monday, we actually have physical merchandise this year. If you're a fan of the Classic Tales, we've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more at our online merchandise store. Do you know an erudite troglodyte? Maybe you have a Jane Austen fan on your list who would like a Pride and Prejudice tote bag. Or how about a hoodie from the Count of Monte Cristo or Wuthering Heights? Click on the link in the description for this episode to get a unique gift for the literary lover in your life. Go to tpublic.com slash user slash classic tales. Now for our personal moment. Well, Seven got into the Grassroots Shakespeare Company He will be Sebastian in their production of Twelfth Night. He's so excited and we are so proud. One of the traditions we do every year is the Messiah Sing-In. Years ago, a friend of mine got Scylla to be a member of a choir that performed with an orchestra in a beautiful historic building a couple of towns over. It was amazing and they did it for like ten years. But they stopped because the conductor got to be too old. So now, we drive up to Salt Lake and do a Messiah sing-in with the Utah Symphony and soloists from the Utah Opera. It's a fun tradition we look forward to every year. That's where we'll be on Sunday. And that's our personal moment. Hope you liked it. (laughs) And now, The Murder on the Links, Part 3 of 7, by Agatha Christie. Chapter 8. An Unexpected Meeting We were up at the villa betimes next morning. The man on guard at the gate did not bar us our way this time. Instead, he respectfully saluted us, and we passed on to the house. The maid, Leonie, was just coming down the stairs, and did not seem averse to the prospect of a little conversation. Poirot inquired after the health of Mrs. Renault. Leonie shook her head. She is terribly upset, la pauvre dame. She will eat nothing, 
but nothing, and she is as pale as a ghost. It is heartrending to see her. Ah, par exemple, it is not I who would grieve like that for a man who has deceived me with another woman. Poirot nodded sympathetically. What you say is very just, but what will you? The heart of a woman who loves will forgive many blows. Still, undoubtedly, there must have been many scenes of recrimination between them in the last few months. Again Leonie shook her head. Never, monsieur, never have I heard madame utter a word of protest, of reproach even. She had the temper and disposition of an angel, quite different to monsieur. Monsieur Renaud had not the temper of an angel? Far from it. When he enraged himself, the whole house knew of it. The day that he quarrelled with Monsieur Jacques, ma foi, they might have been heard in the marketplace they shouted so loud. Indeed, said Poirot. And when did this quarrel take place? Oh, it was just before Monsieur Jacques went to Paris. Almost he missed his train. He came out of the library and caught up his bag which he had left in the hall. The automobile, it was being repaired, and he had to run for the station. I was dusting the salon, and I saw him pass, and his face was white, white, with two burning spots of red. Ah, but he was angry. Leonie was enjoying her narrative thoroughly. And the dispute, what was it about? Ah, that I do not know, confessed Leonie. It is true that they shouted, but their voices were so loud and high, and they spoke so fast, that only one well acquainted with English could have comprehended. But, monsieur, he was like a thundercloud all day, impossible to please him. The sound of a door shutting upstairs cut short Leonie's loquacity. And Francoise, who awaits me, she exclaimed, awakening to a tardy remembrance of her duties. That old one she always scolds. One moment, mademoiselle. The examining magistrate, where is he? They have gone out to look at the automobile in the garage. Monsieur the commissary had some idea that it might have been used on the night of the murder. Calide, murmured Poirot, as the girl disappeared. You will go out and join them? No. I shall await their return in the salon. It is cool there on this hot morning. This placid way of taking things did not quite commend itself to me. If you don't mind, I said, and hesitated. Not in the least. You wish to investigate on your own account, eh? Well, I'd rather like to have a look at Giraud, if he's anywhere about, and see what he's up to. The human foxhound, murmured Poirot, as he leaned back in a comfortable chair and closed his eyes. By all means, my friend. Au revoir. I strolled out of the front door. It was certainly hot. I turned up the path we had taken the day before. I had a mind to study the scene of the crime myself. I did not go directly to the spot, however, but turned aside into the bushes, so as to come out on the link some hundred yards or so further to the right. If Giraud was still on the spot, I wanted to observe his methods before he knew of my presence. But the shrubbery here was much denser, and I had quite a struggle to force my way through. When I emerged at last on the course— it was quite unexpectedly, and with such vigour, that I cannoned heavily into a young lady who had been standing with her back to the plantation. She not unnaturally gave a suppressed shriek, but I too uttered an exclamation of surprise, for it was my friend of the train, Cinderella. The surprise was mutual. 
"'You?' we both exclaimed simultaneously. The young lady recovered herself first. "'My only aunt!' she exclaimed. "'What are you doing here?' "'For the matter of that, what are you?' I retorted. "'When last I saw you, the day before yesterday, "'you were trotting home to England like a good little boy. "'Have they given you a season ticket to and fro on the strength of your MP?' "'I ignored the end of the speech. "'When last I saw you,' I said, "'you were trotting home with your sister like a good little girl. "'By the way, how is your sister?' "'A flash of white teeth rewarded me. "'How kind of you to ask. "'My sister is well, thank you.' "'She is here with you? "'She remained in town,' said the minx with dignity. "'I don't believe you've got a sister,' I laughed. "'If you have, her name is Harris. "'Do you remember mine?' she asked with a smile. "'Cinderella. "'But you're going to tell me the real one now, aren't you?' "'She shook her head with a wicked look. "'Not even why you're here? "'Oh, that. "'I suppose you've heard of members of my profession resting "'at expensive French watering-places?' "'Dirt cheap, if you know where to go.' "'I eyed her keenly. "'Still, you'd no intention of coming here when I met you two days ago. "'We all have our disappointments,' said Miss Cinderella sententiously. "'There, now, I've told you quite as much as is good for you. "'Little boys should not be inquisitive. "'You've not yet told me what you're doing here. "'Got the MP in tow, I suppose, doing the gay boy on the beach?' "'I shook my head. "'Guess again.' "'You remember my telling you that my great friend was a detective? "'Yes? "'And perhaps you've heard about this crime at the Villa Genevieve?' "'She stared at me. "'Her breast heaved, and her eyes grew wide and round. "'You don't mean that you're in on that?' "'I nodded. "'There was no doubt that I had scored heavily. "'Her emotion, as she regarded me, was only too evident.' For some few seconds she remained silent, staring at me. Then she nodded her head emphatically. "'Well, if that doesn't beat the band, tote me round. I want to see all the horrors.' "'What do you mean?' "'What I say, bless the boy. Didn't I tell you I doted on crimes? What do you think I'm imperiling my ankles for in high-heeled shoes over this stubble? I've been nosing round for hours. Tried the front way in.' "'but the old stick in the mud of a French gendarme wasn't taking any. "'I guess Helen of Troy and Cleopatra and Mary Queen of Scots rolled in one "'wouldn't cut ice with him. "'It's a real piece of luck happening on you this way. "'Come on, show me all the sights. "'But look here. Wait a minute, I can't. "'Nobody's allowed in. They're awfully strict. "'Aren't you and your friend the big bugs?' "'I was loath to relinquish my position of importance. "'Why are you so keen?' I asked weakly. "'And what is it you want to see?' "'Oh, everything! "'The place where it happened, and the weapon, and the body, "'and any fingerprints or interesting things like that. "'I've never had a chance of being right in on a murder like this before. "'It'll last me all my life!' "'I turned away, sickened. "'What were women coming to nowadays? "'The girl's ghoulish excitement nauseated me. "'I had read of the mobs of women who besieged the law courts "'when some... "'Wretched man was being tried for his life on a capital charge. "'I had sometimes wondered who these women were. "'Now I knew. "'They were the likeness of Cinderella, "'young, yet obsessed with a yearning for morbid excitement, "'for sensation at any price, 
without regard to any decency or good feeling. The vividness of the girl's beauty had attracted me in spite of myself, yet at heart I retained my first impression of disapproval and dislike. I thought of my mother, long since dead. What would she have said of this strange modern product of girlhood, the pretty face with the paint and powder, and the ghoulish mind behind? "'Come off your high horse,' said the lady suddenly. "'And don't give yourself airs. "'When you got called to this job, "'did you put your nose in the air and say it was a nasty business, "'and you wouldn't be mixed up in it?' "'No, but if you'd been here on a holiday, "'wouldn't you be nosing round just the same as I am? "'Of course you would. "'I'm a man. You're a woman. "'Your idea of a woman is someone who gets on a chair "'and shrieks if she sees a mouse. "'That's all prehistoric.' "'But you will show me round, won't you? "'You see, it might make a big difference to me. "'In what way? "'They're keeping all the reporters out. "'I might make a big scoop with one of the papers. "'You don't know how much they pay for a bit of inside stuff.' "'I hesitated. "'She slipped a small, soft hand into mine. "'Please, there's a dear.' "'I capitulated.' Secretly, I knew that I should rather enjoy the part of showman. After all, the moral attitude displayed by the girl was none of my business. I was a little nervous as to what the examining magistrate might say, but I reassured myself by the reflection that no harm could possibly be done. We repaired first to the spot where the body had been discovered. A man was on guard there, who saluted respectfully, knowing me by sight, and raised no question as to my companion. Presumably he regarded her as vouched for by me. I explained to Cinderella just how the discovery had been made, and she listened attentively, sometimes putting an intelligent question. Then we turned our steps in the direction of the villa. I proceeded rather cautiously, for, truth to tell, I was not at all anxious to meet anyone. I took the girl through the shrubbery round to the back of the house where the small shed was. I recollected that yesterday evening— after relocking the door, Monsieur Bex had left the key with the sergeant de ville marchot. In case Monsieur Giraud should require it while we are upstairs. I thought it quite likely that the surete detective, after using it, had returned it to Marchot again. Leaving the girl out of sight in the shrubbery, I entered the house. Marchot was on duty outside the door of the salon. From within came the murmur of voices. "'Monsieur desires hotel? He is within. He is again interrogating Françoise.' "'No,' I said hastily. "'I don't want him. But I should very much like the key of the shed outside, if it is not against regulations.' "'But certainly, monsieur,' he produced it. "'Here it is. Monsieur le juge gave orders that all facilities were to be placed at your disposal. You will return it to me when you have finished out there. That is all.' "'Of course.' I felt a thrill of satisfaction as I realized that in Marchot's eyes, at least, I ranked equally in importance with Poirot. The girl was waiting for me. She gave an exclamation of delight as she saw the key in my hand. "'You've got it, then?' "'Of course,' I said coolly. "'All the same, you know, what I'm doing is highly irregular. You've been a perfect duck, and I shan't forget it. Come along. They can't see us from the house, can they?' "'Wait a minute.' I arrested her eager advance. "'I won't stop you if you really wish to go in, but do you? You've seen the grave and the grounds, and you've heard all the details of the affair. 
Isn't that enough for you? This is going to be gruesome, you know, and uh, unpleasant. She looked at me for a moment with an expression that I could not quite fathom. Then she laughed. Me for the horrors, she said. Come along. In silence, we arrived at the door of the shed. I opened it, and we passed in. I walked over to the body, and gently pulled down the sheet as Monsieur Bex had done the preceding afternoon. A little gasping sound escaped from the girl's lips, and I turned and looked at her. There was horror on her face now, and those debonair high spirits of hers were quenched utterly. She had not chosen to listen to my advice, and she was punished now for her disregard of it. I felt singularly merciless towards her. She should go through with it now. I turned the corpse gently over. You see, I said, he was stabbed in the back. Her voice was almost soundless. With what? I nodded towards the glass jar. That dagger. Suddenly the girl reeled and then sank down in a heap. I sprang to her assistance. You are faint. Come out of here. It has been too much for you. Water, she murmured. Quick, water. I left her and rushed into the house. Fortunately, none of the servants were about, and I was able to secure a glass of water unobserved and add a few drops of brandy from a pocket flask. In a few minutes I was back again. The girl was lying as I had left her, but a few nips of the brandy and water revived her in a marvellous manner. Take me out of here. Oh, quickly, quickly, she cried, shuddering. Supporting her with my arm, I led her out into the air, and she pulled the door behind her. Then she drew a deep breath. That's better. Oh, it was horrible. Why did you ever let me go in? I felt this to be so feminine that I could not forbear a smile. Secretly, I was not dissatisfied with her collapse. It proved that she was not quite so callous as I had thought her. After all, she was little more than a child, and her curiosity had probably been of the unthinking order. I did my best to stop you, you know, I said gently. I suppose you did. Well, goodbye. Look here. You can't start off like that, all alone. You're not fit for it. I insist on accompanying you back to Merlonville. Nonsense. I'm quite all right now. Supposing you felt faint again. No, I shall come with you. But this she combated with a good deal of energy. In the end, however, I prevailed so far as to be allowed to accompany her to the outskirts of the town. We retraced our steps over our former route, passing the grave again, and making a detour onto the road. Where the first straggling line of shops began, she stopped and held out her hand. Goodbye, and thank you ever so much for coming with me. Are you sure you're all right now? Quite, thanks. I hope you won't get into any trouble over showing me things. I disclaimed the idea lightly. Well, goodbye. Au revoir, I corrected. If you're staying here, we shall meet again. She flashed a smile at me. That's so. Au revoir, then. Wait a second. You haven't told me your address. Oh, I'm staying at the Hotel du Fer. It's a little place, but quite good. Come and look me up tomorrow. I will, I said, with perhaps a rather unnecessary empressement. I watched her out of sight, then turned and retraced my steps to the villa. I remembered that I had not relocked the door of the shed. Fortunately, no one had noticed the oversight, 
and turning the key, I removed it, and returned it to the sergeant de ville. And, as I did so, it came upon me suddenly that though Cinderella had given me her address, I still did not know her name. Chapter 9. Monsieur Giraud Finds Some Clues in the salon I found the examining magistrate busily interrogating the old gardener Auguste. Poirot and the commissary, who were both present, greeted me respectfully with a smile and a polite bow. I slipped quietly into a seat. Monsieur Rotet was painstaking and meticulous in the extreme, but did not succeed in eliciting anything of importance. The gardening gloves Auguste admitted to be his— he wore them when handling a certain species of primula plant, which was poisonous to some people. He could not say when he had worn them last. Certainly he had not missed them. Where were they kept? Sometimes in one place, sometimes in another. The spade was usually to be found in the small tool-shed. Was it locked? Of course it was locked. Where was the key kept? Parbleu, it was in the door, of course. There was nothing of value to steal— would have expected a party of bandits, of assassins. Such things did not happen in Madame la Vicomtesse's time. Monsieur Rotet signifying that he had finished with him, the old man withdrew, grumbling to the last. Remembering Poirot's unaccountable insistence on the footprints in the flower-beds, I scrutinized him narrowly as he gave his evidence. Either he had nothing to do with the crime, or he was a consummate actor. Suddenly, just as he was going out of the door— an idea struck me. "'Pardon, Monsieur Rotet,' I cried. "'But will you permit me to ask him one question?' "'But certainly, Monsieur.' Thus encouraged, I turned to Auguste. "'Where do you keep your boots?' "'Sac à papier,' growled the old man. "'Oh, my feet! Where else?' "'But when you go to bed at night?' "'Under my bed.' "'But who cleans them?' "'Nobody. Why should they be cleaned?' Is it that I promenade myself on the front like a young man? On Sunday I wear the Sunday boots, beyond entendu. But otherwise... He shrugged his shoulders. I shook my head, discouraged. Well, well, said the magistrate. We do not advance very much. Undoubtedly we are held up until we get the return cable from Santiago. Has anyone seen Jerome? In verity that one lacks politeness. I have a very good mind to send for him, and— You will not have to send far, Monsieur le Juge. The quiet voice startled us. Giraud was standing outside, looking in through the open window. He leaped lightly into the room and advanced to my table. Here I am, Monsieur le Juge, at your service. Accept my excuses for not presenting myself sooner. Not at all, not at all, said the magistrate, rather confused. "'Of course I am only a detective,' continued the other. "'I know nothing of interrogatories. "'Were I conducting one, "'I should be inclined to do so without an open window. "'Anyone standing outside can so easily hear all that passes, but no matter.' "'Monsieur Rotet flushed angrily. "'There was evidently going to be no love lost "'between the examining magistrate and the detective in charge of the case. "'They had fallen foul of each other at the start.' Perhaps in any event it would have been much the same. To Giraud, all examining magistrates were fools, and to Monsieur Rotet, who took himself seriously, 
the casual manner of the Paris detective could not fail to give offence. And bien, Monsieur Giraud, said the magistrate rather sharply, without doubt you have been employing your time to a marvel. You have the names of the assassins for us, have you not? And also the precise spot where they find themselves now? Unmoved by this irony, Giraud replied, I know at least where they have come from. Comment? Giraud took two small objects from his pocket and laid them down on the table. We crowded around. The objects were very simple ones, the stub of a cigarette and an unlighted match. The detective wheeled round on Poirot. What do you see there? he asked. There was something almost brutal in his tone. It made my cheeks flush, but Poirot remained unmoved. He shrugged his shoulders. A cigarette end and a match. And what does that tell you? Poirot spread out his hands. He tells me nothing. Ah, said Giraud in a satisfied voice. You haven't made a study of these things. That's not an ordinary match. Not in this country, at least. It's common enough in South America. Luckily, it's unlighted. I mightn't have recognized it otherwise. Evidently, one of the men threw away his cigarette end and lit another, spilling one match out of the box as he did so. And the other match? asked Poirot. What match? The one he did light his cigarette with. You have found that also? No. Perhaps you didn't search very thoroughly. Not search thoroughly! For a moment it seemed as though the detective were going to break out angrily, but with an effort he controlled himself. I see you love a joke, Monsieur Poirot. But in any case, match or no match, the cigarette end would be sufficient. It is a South American cigarette with licorice pectoral paper. Poirot bowed. The commissary spoke. The cigarette end and match might have belonged to Monsieur Renault. Remember, it is only two years since he returned from South America. No, replied the other confidently. I have already searched among the effects of Monsieur Renault. The cigarettes he smoked and the matches he used are quite different. You do not think it odd, asked Poirot, that these strangers should come unprovided with a weapon, with gloves, with a spade, and that they should so conveniently find all these things? Giraud smiled in a rather superior manner. Undoubtedly it is strange. Indeed, without the theory that I hold, it would be inexplicable. Aha, said Monsieur Rotet. An accomplice, an accomplice within the house. Or outside it, said Giraud with a peculiar smile. But someone must have admitted them. We cannot allow that by an unparalleled piece of good fortune. They found the door ajar for them to walk in. D'accord, monsieur le juge. The door was opened for them, but it could just as easily be opened from outside by someone who possessed a key. But who did possess a key? Giraud shrugged his shoulders. As for that, no one who possesses one is going to admit the fact if they can help it. But several people might have had one. Monsieur Jack Renault, the son, for instance. It is true that he is on his way to South America, but he might have lost the key, or had it stolen from him. Then there is the gardener. He has been here many years. One of the younger servants may have a lover. It is easy to take an impression of a key and have one cut, 
There are many possibilities. Then there is another person who, I should judge, is exceedingly likely to have such a thing in her keeping. Who is that? Madame de Bray, said the detective dryly. Ah, ah, said the magistrate, his face falling a little. So you have heard about that, have you? I hear everything, said Giraud imperturbably. There is one thing I could swear you have not heard, said Monsieur Rotet, delighted to be able to show superior knowledge, and without more ado, he retailed the story of the mysterious visitor the night before. He also touched on the check made out to Duvine, and finally handed Giraud the letter signed Bella. Giraud listened in silence, studied the letter attentively, and then handed it back. All very interesting, Monsieur le Juge, but my theory remains unaffected. And your theory is? For the moment I prefer not to say. Remember, I am only just beginning my investigations. Tell me one thing, Monsieur Giraud, said Poirot suddenly. Your theory allows for the door being opened. It does not explain why it was left open. When they departed, would it not have been natural for them to close it behind them? If a sergeant de ville had chanced to come up to the house, as he sometimes done to see that all is well, they might have been discovered and overtaken almost at once. Bah! They forgot it! A mistake, I grant you! Then, to my surprise, Poirot uttered almost the same words as he had uttered to Bex the previous evening. I do not agree with you. The door being left open was the result of either design or necessity, and any theory that does not admit that fact is bound to prove vain. We all regarded the little man with a good deal of astonishment. The confession of ignorance drawn from him over the match-end had, I thought, been bound to humiliate him. But here he was, self-satisfied as ever, laying down the law to the great Giraud without a tremor. The detective twisted his moustache, eyeing my friend in a somewhat bantering fashion. "'You don't agree with me, eh? Well, what strikes you particularly about the case? Let's hear your views.' "'One thing presents itself to me as being significant. Tell me, Monsieur Giraud, does nothing strike you as familiar about this case? Is there nothing it reminds you of?' "'Familiar? Reminds me of?' I can't say offhand. I don't think so, though. You are wrong, said Poirot quietly. A crime almost precisely similar has been committed before. When and where? Ah, that, unfortunately, I cannot for the moment remember. But I shall do so. I had hoped you might be able to assist me. Giraud snorted incredulously. There have been many affairs of masked men— I cannot remember the details of them all, and these crimes all resemble each other, more or less. There is such a thing as the individual touch. Poirot suddenly assumed his lecturing manner, and addressed us collectively. I am speaking to you now of the psychology of crime. Monsieur Giraud knows quite well that each criminal has his particular method, and that the police, when called in to investigate, say, a case of burglary, can often make a shrewd guess at the offender simply by the peculiar method he has employed. Jap would tell you the same, Hastings. Man is an unoriginal animal. 
unoriginal within the law, in his daily respectable life, equally unoriginal outside the law. If a man commits a crime, any other crime he commits will resemble it closely. The English murderer, who disposed of his wives in succession by drowning them in their baths, was a case in point. Had he varied his methods, he might have escaped detection to this day. But he obeyed the common dictates of human nature, arguing that what had once succeeded would succeed again, and he paid the penalty of his lack of originality. And the point of all this, sneered Giraud, that when you have two crimes precisely similar in design and execution, you find the same brain behind them both. I am looking for that brain, Monsieur Giraud, and I shall find it. Here we have a true clue, a psychological clue. You may know all about cigarettes and matches, Monsieur Giraud, but I, Hercule Poirot, know the mind of man. And the ridiculous little fellow tapped his forehead with emphasis. Giraud remained singularly unimpressed. For your guidance, continued Poirot, I will also advise you of one fact which might fail to be brought to your notice. The wristwatch of Madame Renault, on the day following the tragedy, had gained two hours. It might interest you to examine it. Giraud stared. Perhaps it was in the habit of gaining. As a matter of fact, I am told it did. Ah, bien, then. All the same, two hours is a good deal, said Poirot softly. Then there is the matter of the footprints in the flower bed. He nodded his head towards the open window. Giraud took two eager strides and looked out. This bed here? Yes. But I see no footprints. No, said Poirot. "'straightening a little pile of books on a table. "'There are none.' "'For a moment an almost murderous rage obscured Giraud's face. "'He took two strides towards his tormentor, "'but at that moment the salon door was opened, "'and Marchot announced, "'Monsieur Stoner, the secretary, has just arrived from England. "'May he enter?' "'Chapter Ten. Gabriel Stoner The man who entered the room was a striking figure, very tall, with a well-knit athletic frame and a deeply bronzed face and neck. He dominated the assembly. Even Giraud seemed anemic beside him. When I knew him better, I realized that Gabriel Stoner was quite an unusual personality. English by birth, he had knocked about all over the world, he had shot big game in Africa, travelled in Korea, ranched in California, and traded in the South Sea Islands. He had been secretary to a New York railway magnate, and had spent a year encamped in the desert with a friendly tribe of Arabs. His unerring eye picked out Monsieur Hautet. "'The examining magistrate in charge of the case? Pleased to meet you, Monsieur Le Juge. This is a terrible business. How's Mrs. Renault? Is she bearing up fairly well?' "'It must have been an awful shock to her.' "'Terrible, terrible,' said Monsieur Rotet. "'Permit me to introduce Monsieur Bex, "'our commissary of police, Monsieur Giraud of the Sûreté. "'This gentleman is Monsieur Hercule Poirot. "'Monsieur Renaud sent for him, 
but he arrived too late to do anything to avert the tragedy. A friend of Monsieur Poirot's, Captain Hastings. Stoner looked at Poirot with some interest. Sent for you, did he? You did not know, then, that Monsieur Renault contemplated calling in a detective? interposed Monsieur Bax. No, I didn't, but it doesn't surprise me a bit. Why? Because the old man was rattled. I don't know what it was all about. He didn't confide in me. We weren't on those terms, but rattled he was, and badly. Hmm, said Monsieur Rotet. But you have no notion of the cause. That's what I said, sir. You will pardon me, Monsieur Stoner, but we must begin with a few formalities. Your name? Gabriel Stoner. How long ago was it that you became secretary to Monsieur Renault? About two years ago, when he first arrived from South America. I met him through a mutual friend, and he offered me the post. A thundering good boss he was, too. Did he talk to you much about his life in South America? Yes, a good bit. Do you know if he was ever in Santiago? Several times, I believe. He never mentioned any special incident that occurred there. Anything that might have provoked some vendetta against him? Never. Did he speak of any secrets that he had acquired whilst sojourning there? No. Did he ever say anything at all about a secret? Not that I can remember. But for all that, there was a mystery about him. I've never heard him speak of his boyhood, for instance, or of any incident prior to his arrival in South America. He was a French-Canadian by birth, I believe, but I've never heard him speak of his life in Canada. He could shut up like a clam if he liked. So as far as you know, he had no enemies, and you can give us no clue as to any secrets to obtain possession of which he might have been murdered? That's so. Monsieur Stoner, have you ever heard the name of Duvine in connection with Monsieur Renaud? Duvine. Duvine. He tried the name over thoughtfully. I don't think I have, and yet it seems familiar. Do you know a lady, a friend of Monsieur Renaud's, whose Christian name is Bella? Again Mr. Stoner shook his head. Bella Duvine? Is that the full name? It's curious. I'm sure I know it, but for the moment I can't remember in what connection. The magistrate coughed. You understand, Monsieur Stoner, the case is like this. There must be no reservations. You might perhaps, through a feeling of consideration for Madame Renault, for whom I gather you have a great esteem and affection, you might... Enfin, said Monsieur Rotet, getting rather tied up in his sentence. There must absolutely be no reservations. Stoner stared at him, a dawning light of comprehension in his eyes. I don't quite get you, he said gently. Where does Mrs. Renault come in? I have an immense respect and affection for that lady. She's a very wonderful and unusual type. But I don't quite see how my reservations or otherwise could affect her. Not if this Bella Duvine should prove to have been something more than a friend to her husband? Ah, said Stoner, I get you now, but I'll bet my bottom dollar that you're wrong. The old man never so much as looked at a petticoat. He just adored his own wife. They were the most devoted couple I know. Monsieur Rotet shook his head gently. Monsieur Stoner, we have absolute proof 
a love letter, written by this Bella to Monsieur Renaud, accusing him of having tired of her. Moreover, we have further proof that, at the time of his death, he was carrying on an intrigue with a Frenchwoman, a Madame Dubray, who rents the adjoining villa. And this is the man who, according to you, never looked at a petticoat? The secretary's eyes narrowed. Hold on, Monsieur Le Juge. You're barking up the wrong tree. I knew Paul Renault. What you've just been saying is utterly impossible. There's some other explanation. The magistrate shrugged his shoulders. What other explanation could there be? What leads you to think it was a love affair? Madame Dubray was in the habit of visiting him here in the evenings. Also, since Monsieur Renault came to the village Genevieve, Madame Dubray has paid large sums of money into the bank in notes. In all, the amount totals four thousand pounds of your English money. I guess that's right, said Stoner quietly. I transmitted him those sums at his request, but it wasn't an intrigue. Ah, mon Dieu, what else could it be? Blackmail, said Stoner sharply, bringing down his hand with a slam on the table. That's what it was. Ah, voilà une idée, cried the magistrate, shaken in spite of himself. Blackmail, repeated Stoner. The old man was being bled, and at a good rate, too. Four thousand in a couple of months. Phew. I told you just now there was a mystery about Renaud. Evidently this Madame de Bray knew enough of it to put the screws on. It is possible, the commissary cried excitedly. Decidedly it is possible. Possible? roared Stoner. It's certain. Tell me, have you asked Mrs. Renaud about this love affair stunt of yours? No, monsieur. We did not wish to occasion her any distress if it could reasonably be avoided. Distress? Why, she'd laugh in your face. I tell you, she and Renaud were a couple in a hundred. Ah, that reminds me of another point, said Monsieur Rotay. Did Monsieur Renaud take you into his confidence at all, as to the dispositions of his will? I know all about it. Took it to the lawyer for him after he'd drawn it out. I can give you the name of his solicitors if you want to see it. They've got it there. Quite simple. Half in trust to his wife for her lifetime, the other half to his son. A few legacies. I rather think he left me a thousand. When was this will drawn up? Oh, about a year and a half ago. Would it surprise you very much, Monsieur Stoner, to hear that Monsieur Renaud had made another will less than a fortnight ago? Stoner was obviously very much surprised. I had no idea of it. What's it like? The whole of his vast fortune is left unreservedly to his wife. There is no mention of his son. Mr. Stoner gave vent to a prolonged whistle. I call that rather rough on the lad. His mother adores him, of course, but to the world at large it looks rather like a want of confidence on his father's part. It will be rather galling to his pride. Still, it all goes to prove what I told you that Renault and his wife were on first-rate terms. Quite so, quite so, said Monsieur Rotet. It is possible we shall have to revise our ideas on several points. We have, of course, cabled to Santiago, and are expecting a reply from there any minute. In all possibility, everything will then be perfectly clear and straightforward. On the other hand, 
If your suggestion of blackmail is true, Madame de Bray ought to be able to give us valuable information. Poirot interjected a remark. Monsieur Stoner, the English chauffeur Masters, has he been long with Monsieur Renault? Over a year? Have you any idea whether he has ever been in South America? I am quite sure he hasn't. Before coming to Mr. Renault, he had been for many years with some people in Gloucestershire, whom I know well. In fact, you can answer for him as being above suspicion? Absolutely. Poirot seemed somewhat crestfallen. Meanwhile, the magistrate had summoned Marchal. My compliments to Madame Renault, and I should be glad to speak to her for a few minutes. Beg her not to disturb herself. I will wait upon her upstairs. Marchot saluted and disappeared. We waited some minutes, and then to our surprise the door opened and Mrs. Renault, deathly pale in her heavy mourning, entered the room. Monsieur Rotet brought forward a chair, uttering vigorous protestations, and she thanked him with a smile. Stoner was holding one hand of hers in his with an eloquent sympathy. Words evidently failed him. Mrs. Renault turned to Monsieur Rotet. "'You wished to ask me something, Monsieur Le Juge?' "'With your permission, madame. "'I understand your husband was a French-Canadian by birth. "'Can you tell me anything of his youth or upbringing?' "'She shook her head. "'My husband was always very reticent about himself, monsieur. "'He came from the northwest, I know, "'but I fancy that he had an unhappy childhood, "'for he never cared to speak of that time.' Our life was lived entirely in the present and the future. Was there any mystery in his past life? Mrs. Renault smiled a little and shook her head. Nothing so romantic, I am sure, Monsieur Le Juge. Monsieur Rotet also smiled. True. We must not permit ourselves to get melodramatic. There is one thing more. He hesitated. Stoner broke in impetuously. They've got an extraordinary idea into their heads, Mrs. Renault. They actually fancy that Mr. Renault was carrying on an intrigue with Madame de Bray, who, it seems, lives next door. The scarlet colour flamed into Mrs. Renault's cheeks. She flung her head up, then bit her lip, her face quivering. Stoner stood, looking at her in astonishment. But Monsieur Bex leaned forward and said gently, We regret to cause you pain, madame. But have you any reason to believe that Madame Dubray was your husband's mistress? With a sob of anguish, Mrs. Renault buried her face in her hands. Her shoulders heaved convulsively. At last she lifted her head and said brokenly, She may have been. Never in all my life have I seen anything to equal the blank amazement on Stoner's face? He was thoroughly taken aback. Chapter 11 Jack Renault What the next development of the conversation would have been, I cannot say, for at that moment the door was thrown violently open, and a tall young man strode into the room. Just for a moment... I had the uncanny sensation that the dead man had come to life again. Then I realized that this dark head was untouched with grey, and that in point of fact 
He was a mere boy who now burst in among us with so little ceremony. He went straight to Mrs. Renault with an impetuosity that took no heed of the presence of others. Mother! Jack! With a cry she folded him in her arms. My dearest! But what brings you here? You were to sail on the Anzora from Cherbourg two days ago. Then suddenly recalling to herself the presence of others, she turned with a certain dignity. My son, messieurs. Aha! said Monsieur Rotet, acknowledging the young man's bow. So you did not sail on the Anzora? No, monsieur. As I was about to explain, the Anzora was detained twenty-four hours through engine trouble. I should have sailed last night instead of the night before, but happening to buy an evening paper, I saw in it an account of the the awful tragedy that has befallen us. His voice broke, and the tears came into his eyes. My poor father, my poor, poor father. Staring at him like one in a dream, Mrs. Renault repeated, So you did not sail. And then with a gesture of infinite weariness, she murmured as though to herself, And after all, it does not matter now. Sit down, Monsieur Renault, I beg of you, said Monsieur Rotet, indicating a chair. My sympathy for you is profound. It must have been a terrible shock for you to learn the news as you did. However, it is most fortunate that you were prevented from sailing. I am in the hopes that you may be able to give us just the information we need to clear up this mystery. I am at your disposal, Monsieur Le Juge. Ask me any questions you please. To begin with, I understand that this journey was being undertaken at your father's request? Quite so, Monsieur Le Juge. I received a telegram bidding me to proceed without delay to Buenos Aires, and from thence, via the Andes, to Valparaiso, and on to Santiago. Ah, and the object of this journey? I have no idea, Monsieur Le Juge. What? No. See, here is the telegram. The magistrate took it and read it aloud. Proceed immediately, Cherbourg. Embark Anzora, sailing tonight. Buenos Aires. Ultimate destination, Santiago. Further instructions will await you, Buenos Aires. Do not fail. Matter is of utmost importance. Renault. And there has been no previous correspondence on the matter? Jack Renault shook his head. That is the only intimation of any kind. I knew, of course, that my father, having lived so long out there, had necessarily many interests in South America, but he had never mooted any suggestion of sending me out. You have, of course, been a good deal in South America, Monsieur Renault. I was there as a child, but I was educated in England, and spent most of my holidays in that country, so I really know far less of South America than might be supposed. You see, the war broke out when I was seventeen. You served in the English Flying Corps, did you not? Yes, Monsieur Le Juge. Monsieur Rotet nodded his head, and proceeded with his inquiries along the, by now, well-known lines. In response, Jack Renault declared definitely that he knew nothing of any enmity his father might have incurred in the city of Santiago, or anywhere in the South American continent, that he had noticed no change in his father's manner of late, and that he had never heard him refer to a secret. He had regarded the mission to South America as connected with business interests. As Monsieur Rotet paused for a minute, 
the quiet voice of Giraud broke in. "'I should like to put a few questions on my own account, Monsieur le Juge.' "'By all means, Monsieur Giraud, if you wish,' said the magistrate coldly. Giraud edged his chair a little nearer to the table. "'Were you on good terms with your father, Monsieur Renaud?' "'Certainly I was,' returned the lad haughtily. "'You assert that positively?' "'Yes. No little disputes, eh?' Jack shrugged his shoulders. "'Everyone may have a difference of opinion now and then. Quite so, quite so. But if anyone were to assert that you had a violent quarrel with your father on the eve of your departure for Paris, that person, without doubt, would be lying?' I could not but admire the ingenuity of Giraud. His boast, I know everything, had been no idle one. Jack Renault was clearly disconcerted by the question. We... we did have an argument, he admitted. Ah, an argument. In the course of that argument, did you use this phrase, When you are dead, I can do as I please? I may have done, muttered the other. I don't know. In response to that, did your father say, "'But I am not dead yet,' to which you responded, "'I wish you were?' The boy made no answer. His hands fiddled nervously with the things on the table in front of him. "'I must request an answer, please, Monsieur Renault," said Giraud sharply. With an angry exclamation, the boy swept a heavy paper-knife onto the floor. "'What does it matter? You might as well know. "'Yes, I did quarrel with my father.' I dare say I said all those things. I was so angry I cannot even remember what I said. I was furious. I could almost have killed him at that moment. There, make the most of that. He leant back in his chair, flushed and defiant. Giraud smiled. Then, moving his chair back a little, said, That is all. You would, without doubt, prefer to continue the interrogatory, Monsieur le Juge? Ah, yes, exactly, said Monsieur Rotet. And what was the subject of your quarrel? I declined to state. Monsieur Rotet sat up in his chair. Monsieur Renaud, it is not permitted to trifle with the law, he thundered. What was the subject of the quarrel? Young Renaud remained silent, his boyish face sullen and overcast. But another voice spoke, imperturbable and calm, the voice of Hercule Poirot. I will inform you, if you like, Monsieur le Juge. You know? Certainly I know. The subject of the quarrel was Mademoiselle Marthe Dubray. Renaud sprang around, startled. The magistrate leaned forward. Is this so, Monsieur? Jack Renaud bowed his head. Yes, he admitted. I love Mademoiselle Dubray, and I wish to marry her. When I informed my father of the fact, he flew at once into a violent rage. Naturally, I could not stand hearing the girl I loved insulted, and I too lost my temper. Monsieur Rotet looked across at Mrs. Renault. You were aware of this attachment, madame? I feared it, she replied simply. Mother, cried the boy, you too? Marta is as good as she is beautiful. What can you have against her? I have nothing against Mademoiselle Dubray in any way, but I should prefer you to marry an Englishwoman, or, if a Frenchwoman, 
not one who has a mother of doubtful antecedents. A rancor against the older woman showed plainly in her voice, and I could well understand that it must have been a bitter blow to her when her only son showed signs of falling in love with the daughter of her rival. Mrs. Renault continued, addressing the magistrate. I ought perhaps to have spoken to my husband on the subject, but I hoped that it was only a boy and girl flirtation, which would blow over all the quicker if no notice was taken of it. I blame myself now for my silence, but my husband, as I told you, had seemed so anxious and careworn, different altogether from his normal self, that I was chiefly concerned not to give him any additional worry. Monsieur Rotet nodded. When you informed your father of your intentions towards Mademoiselle Dubray, he resumed, he was surprised. He seemed completely taken aback. Then he ordered me peremptorily to dismiss any such idea from my mind. He would never give his consent to such a marriage. Nettled, I demanded what he had against Mademoiselle Dubray. To that he could give no satisfactory reply, but spoke in slighting terms of the mystery surrounding the lives of the mother and daughter. I answered that I was marrying Marta, not her antecedents, but he shouted me down with a peremptory refusal to discuss the matter in any way. The whole thing must be given up. The injustice and high-handedness of it all maddened me, especially since he himself always seemed to go out of his way to be attentive to the Dubrays, and was always suggesting that they should be asked to the house. I lost my head, and we quarrelled in earnest. My father reminded me that I was entirely dependent on him, and it must have been in answer to that that I made the remark about doing as I pleased after his death. Poirot interrupted with a quick question. You were aware, then, of the terms of your father's will? I knew that he had left half his fortune to me, the other half in trust for my mother, to come to me after her death, replied the lad. Proceed with your story, said the magistrate. After that we shouted at each other in sheer rage, until I suddenly realized that I was in danger of missing my train to Paris. I had to run for the station, still in a white heat of fury. However, once well away, I calmed down. I wrote to Marta, telling her what had happened, and her reply soothed me still further. She pointed out to me that we had only to be steadfast, and any opposition was bound to give way at last. Our affection for each other must be tried and proved, and when my parents realized that it was no light infatuation on my part, they would doubtless relent towards us. Of course, to her— I had not dwelt on my father's principal objection to the match. I soon saw that I should do my cause no good by violence. My father wrote me several letters to Paris, affectionate in tone, and which did not refer to our disagreement or its cause, and I replied in the same strain. "'You can produce those letters, eh?' said Giraud. "'I did not keep them.' "'No matter,' said the detective." Renaud looked at him for a moment, but the magistrate was continuing his questions. "'To pass to another matter, are you acquainted with the name of Duvine, Monsieur Renaud?' "'Duvine,' said Jacques. "'Duvine?' He leaned forward and slowly picked up the paper-knife he had swept from the table. As he lifted his head, his eyes met the watching ones of Giraud. "'Duvine?' "'No.' I can't say I am. 
Will you read this letter, Monsieur Renaud, and tell me if you have any idea as to who the person was who addressed it to your father? Jack Renaud took the letter and read it through, the colour mounting in his face as he did so. Addressed to my father? The emotion and indignation in his tones were evident. Yes, we found it in the pocket of his coat. Does... He hesitated, throwing the merest fraction of a glance towards his mother. The magistrate understood. As yet, no. Can you give us any clue as to the writer? I have no idea whatsoever. Monsieur Rotet sighed. A most mysterious case. Ah, well. I suppose we can now rule out the letter altogether. What do you think, Monsieur Giraud? It does not seem to lead us anywhere. It certainly does not, agreed the detective with emphasis. And yet, sighed the magistrate, it promised at the beginning to be such a beautiful and simple case. He caught Mrs. Renault's eye and blushed in immediate confusion. Ah, yes, he coughed, turning over the papers on the table. Let me see, where were we? Now, the weapon. I fear this may give you pain, Monsieur Renault. I understand it was a present from you to your mother. Very sad. Very distressing. Jack Renault leaned forward. His face, which was flushed during the perusal of the letter, was now deadly white. Do you mean that it was with an aeroplane wire paper cutter that my father was. was killed? But it's impossible. A little thing like that? Alas, Monsieur Renault. It is only too true. An ideal little tool, I fear. Sharp and easy to handle. Where is it? Can I see it? Is it still in the... the body? Oh, no. It has been removed. You would like to see it, to make sure? It would be as well, perhaps, though Madame has already identified it. Still, Monsieur Bex, might I trouble you? Certainly, Monsieur Le Juge. I will fetch it immediately. Would it not be better to take Monsieur Renault to the shed? suggested Giraud smoothly. Without doubt he would wish to see his father's body. The boy made a shivering gesture of negation, and the magistrate, always disposed to cross Giraud whenever possible, replied, But no, not at present. Monsieur Bex will be so kind as to bring it to us here. The commissary left the room. Stoner crossed to Jack and wrung him by the hand. Poirot had risen and was adjusting a pair of candlesticks that struck his trained eye as being a shade askew. The magistrate was reading the mysterious love letter through a last time, clinging desperately to his first theory of jealousy and a stab in the back. Suddenly the door burst open and the commissary rushed in. Monsieur le juge! Monsieur le juge! But yes, what is it? The dagger! It is gone! Comment? Gone? Vanished! Disappeared! The glass jar that contained it is empty! What? I cried. Impossible! Why, only this morning I saw... The words died on my tongue. But the attention of the entire room was diverted to me. What is that you say? cried the commissary. This morning? I saw it there, this morning. I said slowly, about an hour and a half ago, to be accurate. You went to the shed, then? How did you get the key? 
I asked the Sergeant de Ville for it. And you went there? Why? I hesitated, but in the end I decided that the only thing to do was to make a clean breast of it. Monsieur le juge, I said, I have committed a grave fault, for which I must crave your indulgence. Eh bien, proceed, monsieur. The fact of the matter is, I said, wishing myself anywhere else than where I was, that I met a young lady, an acquaintance of mine. She displayed a great desire to see everything that was to be seen, and I... Well, in short, I took the key to show her the body. Ah, par exemple, cried the magistrate indignantly. But it is a grave fault you have committed there, Captain Hastings. It is altogether most irregular. You should not have permitted yourself this folly. I know, I said meekly. Nothing that you can say could be too severe, Monsieur Le Juge. You did not invite this lady to come here. Certainly not. I met her quite by accident. She is an English lady who happens to be staying in Merlonville, though I was not aware of that until my unexpected meeting with her. Well, well, said the magistrate, softening. It was most irregular, but the lady is without doubt young and beautiful, n'est-ce pas? What is it to be young? Oh, jeuneuse, jeuneuse. And he sighed sentimentally. But the commissary, less romantic and more practical, took up the tale. But did you not reclose and lock the door when you departed? That's just it, I said slowly. That's what I blame myself for so terribly. My friend was upset at the sight. She nearly fainted. I got her some brandy and water, and afterwards insisted on accompanying her back to town. In the excitement I forgot to relock the door. I only did so when I got back to the villa. Then for twenty minutes at least, said the commissary slowly. He stopped. Exactly, I said. Twenty minutes, mused the commissary. It is deplorable, said Monsieur Rotet, his sternness of manner returning. Without precedent. Suddenly another voice spoke. You find it deplorable, Monsieur Le Juge? asked Giraud. Certainly I do. Eh bien, I find it admirable, said the other imperturbably. This unexpected ally quite bewildered me. Admirable, Monsieur Giraud? asked the magistrate, studying him cautiously out of the corner of his eye. Precisely. And why? Because we know now that the assassin, or an accomplice of the assassin, has been near the villa only an hour ago. It will be strange if with that knowledge we do not shortly lay hands upon him. There was a note of menace in his voice. He continued. He risked a good deal to gain possession of that dagger. Perhaps he feared that fingerprints might be discovered on it. Poirot turned to Bex. You said there were none? Giraud shrugged his shoulders. Perhaps he could not be sure. Poirot looked at him. You are wrong, Monsieur Giraud. The assassin wore gloves, so he must have been sure. I do not say it was the assassin himself. It may have been an accomplice who was not aware of that fact. Il sont mal résigné, les accomplices, muttered Poirot, 
but he said no more. The magistrate's clerk was gathering up the papers on the table. Monsieur Rotet addressed us. Our work here is finished. Perhaps, Monsieur Renaud, you will listen whilst your evidence is read over to you. I have purposely kept all the proceedings as informal as possible. I have been called original in my methods, but I maintain that there is much to be said for originality. The case is now in the clever hands of the renowned Monsieur Giraud. He will without doubt distinguish himself. Indeed, I wonder that he has not already laid his hands upon the murderers. Madame, again, let me assure you of my heartfelt sympathy. Messieurs, I wish you all a good day. And accompanied by his clerk and the commissary, he took his departure. Poirot tugged out that large turnip of a watch of his and observed the time. Let us return to the hotel for lunch, my friend, he said and you shall recount to me in full the indiscretions of this morning. No one is observing us. We need make no adieus. We went quietly out of the room. The examining magistrate had just driven off in his car. I was going down the steps when Poirot's voice arrested me. One little moment, my friend. Dexterously he whipped out his yard measure, and proceeded quite solemnly to measure an overcoat "'hanging in the hall from the collar to the hem. "'I had not seen it hanging there before, "'and guessed that it belonged to either Mr. Stoner or Jack Renault. "'Then, with a little satisfied grunt, "'Poirot returned the measure to his pocket "'and followed me out into the open air. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Murder on the Links, Part 3 of 7, by Agatha Christie. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month, or you can check out our merchandise store to get something for the literary lover on your list by going to Public slash user slash classic tales. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. to Ram Power Days and experience the raw power of the Ram 3500 with available best-in-class torque and towing among 350-3500 pickups when properly equipped. Strap yourself in for one powerful ride in the Ram TRX with the most horsepower of any gas pickup ever built or the Ram 1500, awarded number one in driver appeal among light-duty pickups by J.D. Power three years in a row. Hurry into Ram Power Days going on now. For J.D. Power 2022 U.S. award information, visit jdpower.com awards.